We're going to be doing that for a few more weeks because there's so much richness we don't want to miss out on. So with that, um, we only have three questions today. I think two of them are actually share. I don't know, one share and two questions. So uh, feel free to go long on your responses. <laughs> we'll have a rich, robust time of, of uh, interaction with one another. So with that, let's start with the holiness of God provides the only reliable means of knowing ourselves. And who's got the mic? Got it. The holiness of God provides the only reliable means of knowing ourselves. Let's go back to Isaiah 6 and take note of Isaiah's response to the amazing vision of the glorious glory of God. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is striking. He is immediately filled with a sense of doom. He doesn't editorialize about how incredible this scene is or talk about how wonderful it is that he gets to see it. No, his immediate reaction is overwhelming fear. <laughs> this isn't overstated emotional catastrophizing. It is an accurate view of who he is and what he needs. Isaiah's confession has its roots in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. An accurate view of self must begin with Genesis 1. God created us to live in a relationship with him of unceasing submission, obedience, and worship. We understand we were made to live for a glory greater than our own. Our relationship to God, that we carry his image and are called to live for his glory, separates us from every other thing God created. Mm. Let me hold on right there and let me um, ask a question. He uses a word, and that's, um, I'm not even sure it's an actual English word, um, but it, uh, um, you don't hear it very often, but it has rich meaning. Anybody help me understand what catastrophizing is? When, when we catastrophize, what do we do? I was sure it being overly dramatic. Let me get the mic to Yeah, right. Yeah. Kind of being over dramatic about your situation. Okay. Like, like the world's coming to an end, the sky is falling. Okay. Anybody else want to build on that give, or give some more richness to that understanding? Cindy's back there. Everything Mark. is a catastrophe. You say what, what we're saying? Everything is a catastrophe. Everything is a catastrophe. Okay. I think even more than that, we tend to internalize it and say, nobody can understand what I'm going through. Mm, this is the setting. worst thing that's ever happened, and I have to go through it. Mm. And, and so we start playing the yes but game you know when somebody tries to give you advice you say yes but I can't do this and and nobody can understand it yeah it's good that's helpful anybody else Brandon I was going to say a pre-millennialist watching the news (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness there's our theological lens for the day (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, interesting. I, I stopped on that because the term I frequently use because I was exposed to it through biblical counseling is awfulizing. But I think I like catastrophizing, if I could say it, because of what everyone has said, all of the, the different perspectives of this is the worst it could be. 
I mean, this, this, this is just this, this just can't get any worse. And, and Cindy, you even make the point that um, almost like, and it's used in counseling this way, you can't get by it because you can't because the person it's happening to, it's so unique to them that the counselor and nobody else can help them. That you just have to just bear the fact that they're going through the worst, and you're just going to have to to bow to their needs in the midst of their catastrophe. And so when I, anyways, I just wanted to sh- show you that we can get there. My wife has accused me of, uh, from time to time of being a little dramatic, especially in my story tale. I stretched out stories for too long because I'm waiting for that, that end, that punch. Um, but just he, what the, the point that Paul Tripp is making is he's not doing that. This is not Isaiah catastrophizing. This is Isaiah recognizing the truth of the situation. He ends with this. It's underlined in the end of that paragraph. We understand we, may, we were made to live for a glory greater than our own, our relationship to God, that we carry his image and our call to live for his glory separates us from every other thing created in God. And there's an awesomeness to his glory that we pale to demonstrate through our image bearing in this life. And we need to be reminded that this, that's that's what, what we were designed to do was image his glory. So we don't want to give up just because of the fact that uh, we fail so miserably to image it. We can increase in our imaging of that, and that gives God the glory. Okay, let's continue on. But an accurate view of self must also include the Genesis 3 tragedy. Instead of choosing to live with God and for God, Adam and Eve opted for the seduction delusion of autonomy and self-sufficiency that the deceiver sold them, and they disobeyed God's command. When we see Adam and Eve feeling shame toward one another and hiding in fear from God, you know something cosmically, is that how you say it? cosmically yeah. horrible has taken place. Can you pause there real quick there? I've taught over and over again, again about shame. Anybody remember the positive aspect of, of shame that I want this, uh, us to get? Shame is good in a sense. God, it's a it's a grace from God because why? Anybody? And if you're if, if you don't want to take a, a chance at that, I get that. Sometimes my questions have such a, I know what I want, but you guys are left going, what's he want me to say? <laughs> okay, go, ahead, Cindy. Brings us brings us to a place of wanting to repent. Right. When our hearts are seared, our conscience are seared, we stop feeling shame for our wrongdoings, for our sin, for our sin. Shame is in this sense is an act of grace by God given to us. It is the emotion, it's what we should, we're, are supposed to emote as sinful beings after we sin. It should drive us to the place where we say, I am so ashamed of what I have done. That is a godly statement so that we want to not run away from God, but run to God. Repent be forgiven, be cleansed of that shame. That shame is removed in the process of forgiveness. So when you think shame, I, I hope you're thinking differently. Now, there is shame, and, and we won't go into it now. There is shame that can be forced on you by someone else as, as a, someone perpetrating it on you. That's not the kind of shame we're talking about. We're talking about the shame that we create when we sin. Sin is a status of guilt. You don't feel guilt. You either are or are not guilty. Shame is the emotion that drives you to recognize the guilt 
and therefore it is a grace from God. Are we all on track? Don't want hearts, we don't want conscience seared where we don't feel shame. We want to know shame in a sense that we want to know that we are wrong and we need to change. Okay, let's continue on. Sorry to stop you abruptly there. Keep going in that paragraph. Sin exploded into the world God had created, blew up the beautiful shalom, relative peace of the garden, and not only separated people from their creator, but left them because of their disobedience under his condemnation. Righteous condemnation uh, might be important to add. Okay, let's continue on. Only when you stand before the majestic grandeur of the holiness of God will you ever know who you are. Divine holiness and human identity are inextricably tied together. If you do not place yourself before the glorious glory of God's holiness, you will see yourself as more righteous, wiser, and stronger than you are, ever were, or ever will be. You will live as if there is no God, and if there were, you wouldn't really need him anyway. Only God's earth-filling holiness can fill your heart and capture the imagination of your mind so that you can grasp the extent of your unholiness and cry out with a sense of the extent of your own need. Okay, the, the, it's not really a question. It's my share moment that I've got listed here, and you can walk back to Jacob because I already know I'm going to call on Jacob on this one. I don't normally call. I look for volunteers. But Jacob had a, and I had an opportunity to meet over coffee yesterday, and we were talking about this. It came up in this principle so um, the, the, it says, share, explain how the saying, a low view of God leads to a low view of sin. And Jacob said, you know, I'm not real sharp in the morning. So <laughs> Jacob, g- give it a shot. I hope you've had us some coffee and, and we're good to go. Again. I'm just trying to remember how you, I worded it. We'll just start playing that out. How does, uh, just think through this. Explain how the saying, a low view of God, leads to a low view of sin. How does that apply to what we're learning about holiness? It seems different than what we know. Um, Well, you know, when we don't, like our sin is eternal, and, you know, God being eternal... um, you know, if you don't view it in that sense, if you take your sin too lightly, um, you know, that kind of reflects how you see God because, you know, the punishment for sin is, like I said, eternal. And, um, you know, what we tend to do is um, simplify our sin and say, oh, it's just sin instead of, really taking the time to look into how deep it goes into our being. and uh, So you said exactly what I was looking for. You did great. Um, he flipped it. He just naturally flipped it in explaining it. A low view of sin will give you an idea that you have a low view of God. It goes both directions. So if you can say to yourself, I got to be careful because I don't want to put to uh, I don't want to over convict you. If you can say to yourself, "I'm not," I don't understand what the big deal is about, and then put the sin in there. Then what's your view of God? 
It's really making a statement of your view of God, and particularly of your view of his holiness, his otherness, his separateness, his righteousness. So low view of sin means low view of God. All right. Take your bulletins. You guys have bulletins. Some of you have bulletins. Um, You grabbed them when you came in. Who would like to to expound on why in our underneath the, 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 the confession we have adoration, we open away, then then we go to confession, then we go to Thanksgiving, then we go to supplication. Under confession, we confess something. Anybody want to know? Anybody want to want to share with us why you think we confess what we confess there? I've got uh, over here, Joel. So you read the, what we're, we confess. It's right out of First Timothy one fifteen, Joel, and you can read it over when you get the mic, and then explain to me why are we confessing that every single Sunday. You want me to read uh, 1 Timothy 1.15? Yeah. Okay. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So why do we say that? Um, we say that because we're recognizing that um, because God is great, our sin is more grievous. Um, so maybe I, can, uh, maybe I can explain it better this way. It's... There's a certain sense of audacity, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, that's tied with this. Um, for example, if I steal from somebody who is my peer, that's grievous, that's wrong. Um, if I steal from a police officer, we would say that's audacious, right? Mm. Because they have, they have respect and they have a position that is, in the, law, in the eyes of the law, higher than me, right? And if I stole from a king or an emperor, you know, and so then we think about how that scales incredibly, infinitely up to who God is. And so when we recognize who God is, there is that sense of how, how dare I? How, you know, mm. how can I be so audacious as to sin in front of a holy and infinite God who is perfectly, uh, who is perfect, you know, and who knows everything that I do in the inmost thoughts of my heart. So um, I think that's, that's why we, uh, we go through the adoration stage first because we recognize who God is, and in recognizing who God is, we recognize the audacity of our sin and how grievous it is. Perfect. Do you hear what he said? We start off with adoration, so we get the right view of who God is in every service that we start off with as the people of God. This is God. He is completely other. He is high and lifted up. And then we turn to confession, and we look at ourselves. And if you have gotten to the place where you can read that, you can declare that back as a congregation, and you're asking yourself, well, my week wasn't really that bad, or I don't know if that really, there are people, you start to get in relativism, I'm really not that bad compared to, and then fill in the blank, you can go from your neighbor, your brother, your sister, all the way up to, to, or down, however you look at that, to Hitler, I'm not that bad. If you're running into relativism, you're coming into the service with a low view of your sin instead of a high view of your sin. High view of God will give you a high view of your otherness from him in a bad sort of way. Your sinfulness of him. The the distinct gap. He's perfect righteousness. We are unrighteous. Think of all the ways, all the sins that don't even make it out and manifest themselves publicly that we know about. 
We don't need to look for anyone else. And if you're not that person, there is a danger around the corner that, you're, that you will be sinning more because you have a low view of it. You were going to say something. It seems like in even a lot of churches today, they present a very low view of God, where God is like us. He accepts us as we are. You don't have to worry about confessing sin, repenting of sin, because God loves us. So I've we, heard that a lot. We make God in our image instead of us being made in God's image. And I would, I would agree with that. And let's go to, I've got Rob Roy and then I'll go PJ. Rob Roy's been patient. A low view of God leads to a low view of sin, um, and a low view of sin leads to a low view of God. But if you have a low view of God and a low view of sin, you also will have a lack of love for God. Um, one of the Pharisees thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So, when you go all the way through, it's true that if you have a low view of God, you have a low view of sin, and... There is a danger in being over-convicted, but there's also a danger in being stuck in that spot because when you move all the way through the process, for lack of a better term, when you're the chief of sinners and you've been forgiven much, you will love much. And if you sabotage that on the front end, it's disastrous on the back end. Hence, why we go into... The assurance of our salvation. Next, exalt God, recognize our sinfulness, recognize what he did to rectify that problem, the gospel, the death of his son. Now let's listen to the body, listen to the word preached and allow the spirit to do what he's going to do because we are now have our hearts set in the right place. PJ, you were going to say? Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement with everything all my brethren have said i i can't help but think all sin ultimately boils down to us trying to gain proximity to god or losing track of the distance between us and god um you can be like god is the very first temptation um you can know like god you can choose what is good and evil and i think um to to that point where where then in the church you see as stephen was saying that maybe that distance isn't significant. Maybe there's such an emphasis on the personal relationship with with Christ and um, grace, which are both true things, but those things are actually even lessened in in the loss of understanding the distance between you and God. 
Mm. When you understand the distance between you and God in terms of holiness, the fact that he has a personal relationship with me so unholy is far more significant than a God who is a buddy or Mm. is close in me in nature, you know, just a few steps above. And I think with, with, when you lose the reframing so that we do every Sunday by reframing, it puts you in a position of, I have no business being blessed by God. And yet we go right into the Thanksgiving that he does it. He does it anyway. And so I think um, to what many others have said, not only do you have a low view of sin, but uh, that low view of God, you just lose so much appreciation and significance for what he's done because it's, he didn't pay a debt of five dollars. He he paid a huge debt. How much how much greater will he be grateful for the large debt? So, anyway, uh, I'm going to end this sentence. <laughs> yeah, Amen. Wonderful. Um, I'll 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 say one last comment, and, we'll, and then we'll read our next uh, paragraph. And that is, um, so we see that a high view of our need for a savior gives us a high view of the gospel the appreciation we have of the gospel because of that distance let's go ahead and keep going i want to mention that i agree with everything that's been said as well but as far as the portion that says uh, i am the foremost i i always look at it as nobody knows the depth of my sin better than me personally mm-hmm. other than god of course and so I can confess that without a problem. Yep. No need to look for any speck in anyone else's eye. I, can, I need to deal with the, the log in my own. Okay. A man of unclean lips is an interesting way of summarizing the depravity of sin. You could stand holy before God only if you were able to say, I have never said anything to anyone, anywhere, at any time that was in any way wrong in the eyes of God. See James 3. You and I don't need any, any greater evidence of the depths of our sin than what comes out of our mouths. Hmm. Our speech is constant evidence of why we deserve God's wrath and are saved from it only by the atoning grace of Jesus. Yikes. Most people have turned their backs on the ultimate moral fact of the universe, the holiness of God and are content to live with a personal assessment of okayness. They carry with them no sense of personal moral brokenness. They have no fear of God. They feel no sense of need for the rescue of his grace. They eat the forbidden fruit again and again, and they possess little shame and fear. They believe that they are able to be what they're supposed to be and do what they're supposed to do in life without any divine rescue, forgiveness, or assistance. Although they are spiritual beings, there is no intentional spirituality in the way they live. God is not in their thoughts, and his holiness not only has no shaping influence in their lives, but it doesn't receive the slightest recognition. This is where we should this is where we would all be if it weren't for God's eye-opening, heart-exposing, conscience-inflicting, forgiving and empowering grace. By grace we have seen his holiness. It is exposed to us who we are and what we need. 
but we have not been left to our doom. We have been greeted in our doom with the justifying mercies of the Savior. Parents, don't just talk to your children about God's grace. Open their blind eyes to his holiness as well. If they do understand the bad news of their doom, then the good news of God's grace won't mean anything to them. Husbands and wives, if you, do not, if you want to evaluate the true health of your marriage, hold your marriage before the holiness of God. If you want to evaluate the moral condition of your sexuality, your finances, your thoughts, desires, and motivations, hold them before the searching light of the holiness of God. You will never stand in front of the, expanse, uh, the expansive glory of the holiness of God and walk away with an assessment of okayness in any area of your life. Mm. The question posed then, when in your past have you been tempted to assess an area of your life with okayness, failing to view the issue through the lens of God's holiness? I'm not looking for anyone to divulge their deepest, darkest sin. I'm saying in a general sense, in a categorical sense, um, is there something in your life that at one point you realized you came to the understanding using his word, I'm walking in okay and okayness when I shouldn't be. This is not acceptable. I can't keep doing this. I will give you an example and allow that to hopefully prime the pump. I can remember age 21, I became a uh, police officer. Age 23, I be, uh, the Lord transformed my heart and I was saved. I learned that um, the way you get street credibility in my worldview was to act, how do I put this, not act, to speak like the people that are trying to do violence on the rest of the culture. So what I'm getting at is you shout explicatives back at them. So at age 23, I'm, I'm saved out of my old worldview. And now I, my, I'm not a big man. Look at my size. I'm dealing with men that are bigger than me, that I'm trying to get their attention. I, they need to listen to me. My command presence must surely need some explicatives to convince them to do what I need them to do so I don't get hurt and things end well. And the reality is I came to a place where I couldn't be okay with that anymore. My faith, the understanding of who God is and his holiness, I'm going to have to trust in God and, and demonstrate his holiness and take a chance that this guy doesn't, this guy's thinking, oh, he's dealing with a goody two-shoe. I can take this guy, no problem. And take a chance that that comes about. And it was one of those realities where, okay, no more. I can't do the swearing. And I, and I have to tell you, for any of you who have ever uh, uh, sworn in your past, you, it became a part of your, your language. Um, it's not an easy one to stop doing right away. But it became, the more the, I could hear myself differently. It was like I was an out-of-body experience. You could hear yourself using these words, and you're like, oh, I don't want to use that. Pretty soon, you I, I wasn't using them on the streets, but I'm still using them at the, at the water cooler, so to speak, at the end of shift, when all the, the cool cops are there, and you're talking about your day's work, and you're going you're gonna to do that little bro, bravado chest bust and bump, and you're going to talk, talk smack about you know, your day, and there it comes again. Because you now you would with the guys that, that do the work, and you got to demonstrate you're, you're you're as strong as they are. And no, you can't do that, Nick. 
You can't do that anymore. You've got to be holy as he is holy. So that's one, and that would be my example, is when in your past have you been tempted to assess an area of your life with okayness? And that was, I, that was mine. I was assessing it initially as I can be a Christian and I could still act like this on the streets. And that's not okay. Anybody else have an example? Well, look at that. Good, we primed the pump. Let's go over here with Cindy. Thank you. I think those, those times when I'm not in the Word, when I'm not in my prayer life, that the light that shines on my life and exposes that sin is dulled. And so it's those times I choose to be too tired, too busy, too whatever, to be engaged in the Word and memorizing Scripture and things like that, mm. that that happens. Mm. Been there, yeah. Anybody else? Maybe that was, that was a scratching or something that I, I thought I saw movement. <laughs> I see you move, and you're going to be getting the mic. Um, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. You just, if nothing else, take this as an opportunity to assess. If not at the time to, uh, at fellowship today, you don't feel comfortable because you haven't had enough time to assess, maybe it's a great conversation at home, in the privacy of your home. And maybe even ask the one you love, where do you see okayedness in my walk? I'm not distinctly showing a difference, a holiness that I should be demonstrating. Whether it's, it's, you know, I'll let you guys, just ask your spouse or your loved one or somebody who knows you best and, to, and allow them the freedom to speak without being condemned for what they bring to your attention. Okay, let's continue on. Let me finish, let me read that little portion before we jump into number three. Um, It really is true that you and I will know ourselves most fully and accurately when when we place ourselves under the light of the glory of the one who is completely holy in every way all of the time. Okay, let's move into our next area, uh, number three. The holiness of God confronts us with the sinfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. This means that sin not only blinds you, but it also presents itself as something less than sinful. Sin doesn't always seem sinful to us. It often looks more beautiful and pleasurable than dangerous and destructive. If you're eating your third piece of chocolate cake in a moment of gluttony, at the moment you are experiencing not destruction and danger, but the taste of deep, rich chocolate wrapped in silky buttercream. Hey, you have to stop right there. My sin, excuse me, my wife caused a lot of us men to, to, to sin last night at the men's uh, ministry. We were, she made the, what was the, the, the topping on those brownies? She, first she made brownies and what was that? I made chocolate buttercream frosting. Buttercream frosting. And a lot of us who didn't think we were going to cross that threshold of sin and get into the gluttony, we just couldn't. It was bad. So when he's given this example this morning, there's a lot of men that can relate to that temptation. Let's continue on. Silky buttercream. The pleasure of the moment overwhelms your sense of the sinfulness of the moment. When you're on your cell phone trashing someone's reputation, Mm. you don't think about moral transgression at that moment, but rather you are carried along by the scintillating buzz of carrying the sordid tale. When you are lusting after a woman in the line at Starbucks, you are taken up with fantasies of possessing her physical beauty for your own pleasure. You're not thinking about the horribly immoral violation of that moment. 
Temptation's seductive power is that it distracts us with pleasure so that we'll fail to see sin's moral danger. Hmm. Also, sin doesn't always seem so sinful to us after the fact. Even when our consciences are a bit bothered by transgressing God's moral boundaries, we quiet our consciences with self-atoning arguments. We participate in our own deceit by working to convince ourselves that the wrong we did wasn't so wrong after all. We go back and re- rewrite the narrative of the moment to make ourselves look more righteous than we were. So we walk away feeling okay about what God says is not only not okay, but is a repudiation of his holiness. We recast the gossip on the phone as a prayer request, the lust as an appreciation of God's creative artistry, and the extra dessert as a silly little thing. Man, does he just nail us. I mean, he just does. He doesn't let us off the hook. Let's keep going. Sorry, we uh, are down some papers, so I'm catching up where we are at. Um, We are in moral danger when we are able to minimize or deny the inexcusable sinfulness of sin. I want to say something here that bears consideration and explanation. The sinfulness of sin is its verticality. What is most sinful about sin is not that it has a host of negative horizontal effects. Yes, sin will hurt you and those around you. It harms government and and the institutions that we live and depend on. Sin leaves its mark and trail and of destruction wherever it goes. But you and I will only understand the heinousness of sin, uh, the heinous sinfulness of sin, when we understand that every sin is a sin against a holy God. Mm. In his heart-wrenching confession of adultery, David gets it right when he says, "Against you, you only, have I sinned, and I, and done what is evil in your sight." so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Psalm 51.4 Every time I sin, I take my life into my own hands. I ignore the existence of God and turn back my back on his holy rule. Every sin ignores the holiness of God and his command to be like him. Every sin repudiates his authority, his holiness, his moral call. It's a morally impossible for any sin to be only horizontal. Every sin is a sin against God himself. Each act of unholiness is a rebellion against his holiness. And any time I work to make my sin seem less than sinful, I betray him. The disobedience of a child is more than an act of disrespect of God. It's rebellion against God and his holy standard. But parents, your children don't know this. A lack of marital love is not just a relationship violation between a husband and wife, but it dishonors a holy God. You and I will only ever have hearts that are broken by our sin when we acknowledge it vertically, verticality. Only when we stand with Isaiah before the Holy One on the throne and are in awe of his holiness will we see our sin for what it is. Before the holiness of God, sin is never seen as less than sinful. Mm. Let's continue on. 
So what do we do with this? I suggest you find a place where you can be alone, turn off your screens, cut out all noise and distraction, get down on your knees and open your heart to the sinfulness of your sin. Do it right now if you're able. Confess that you minimize sin, learn to live with it and even make friends with it. Confess that you hide it, deny it and explain it away. Confess that much of the grief you feel over your sin is because of its bad horizontal fruit and not because it violates the existence and character of your creator. Let the sinfulness of sin grip you and weep. Weep for your casual response to it. Weep because of its binding power. Weep for the hold it has on you and those around you. But most of all, weep because every time you sin, you betray your holy Lord. What I was going to ask you, but in the interest of time, I, we don't have time to do this, is I was going to ask somebody to lead us corporately. I put all the numbers in there to help whoever was going to lead us corporately to pray this. So what I'm going to challenge you is to take this home and sometime this week pray this prayer. Learn to weep, as James talks about, over our transgressions and not walk by them. You can, You may not emotionally, excuse me, you may not physically weep, drop a tear, but hopefully as you're working your way through this list of seven, you are more and more drawn unto the Lord and conviction that I don't want this. I don't want to be this anymore. Teach me to have that, that sense of weeping over my sinfulness so I, I can have that as a means to combat my sinfulness proactively. Let's continue on with uh, the study. I'm afraid that in our obsession with the distraction of distraction, where anything's better than quiet meditation and where self-reflection finds no welcome, we are forgotten how to mourn. We love the clock-free passivity of the mindless drone of insistent entertainment. Pause right there real quick. We love the clock-free passivity uh, of the mindless drone of incessant entertainment. Entertainment is a time when we come offline and we allow something outside to run our, to run our mind and our thinking. We go into almost like shifting it into neutral. We don't want that. We want to meditate, put it back in gear, and dwell on the things of God. Entertainment's fine for a short, uh, a, a short dose of relaxation. We have a culture that has been marketed and has been sold the bill of goods that entertainment is what we should do when we're not, when we're offline. When you come offline of work, when you come offline of mothering, fathering, uh, uh, whatever it is, you go into entertainment. And they, oftentimes the entertainment is filth. Whether it's the, the what you're listening to, it, it just we've got to get an, an idea that listen to this dis- description. We love the clock-free passivity of the mindless drone of incessant entertainment. All I'm saying, and I don't want to go overboard. Be very careful what your entertainment is. Make sure that it is godly and it's causing you to reflect on God, or at least something that is not ungodly. Let's continue on. We seem afraid to be left alone with our souls exposed to our God. We can't even wait at a stoplight without yanking out our little pocket screens to have the light of have to have the light of distract, distraction shine on our faces once again. 
We love spending our time seeing what will keep us from seeing what we need so de desperately to see. Meanwhile, we are being more than distracted. We are being numbed, dulled, and deceived into believing we are okay. In light of the holiness of God, okay is not a category of human evolution evaluation that we should be comfortable with. We need seasons where we unplug, shut down, turn off, and sit in the presence of our holy God with eyes open and hearts ready to bow before him and mourn. It is when you weep your way into the presence of the holy, holy God that you have gotten it right. Only then, in the face of the vertical heinousness of your sin, will you cry out for the grace that is in that is your only hope in this life and the one to come. I'm not going to go into that, that question. It is a neat question to ask. Maybe you can ask somebody that you're close to. Um, and in the privateness of your home and the privateness of your relationship, you can, you can share this with the other person. And the question is, what, would anyone like to share a word of encouragement with your brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing a time when you were blessed by God through an, your intentional time of mourning your sinfulness before God? Some of us may think about that and go, I've never done such a thing. And hopefully this is a word of encouragement. It's not meant to be con condemnation. It's meant to be encouragement. Let's go ahead and finish with that last paragraph. Let me say it again. Our problem, whether we know it or not, is that sin doesn't always seem sinful to us. Our ability to minimize or deny the gravity of our iniquity and the vertical awfulness of our transgressions is a personal moral disaster. Our willingness to be blind never leads us anywhere good. Holiness begins with the desire to see ourselves with heart-convicting clarity and accuracy, and that clarity comes only when we stand before the throne of our holy God. Remember, you cannot confess what you do not grieve, and you cannot grieve what you have not seen, and you cannot repent of what you have not confessed. Cry out for eyes to see and a heart to weep, and in weeping may you find the joy of discovering mercies that are new once again. Bob, would you like to close us in prayer? Father, we confess that we minimize sin, that we learn to live with it, that we explain it away, and that even the grief that we feel over our sin is because of the fruit of it and not because of who it is against. Lord, we pray that we would uh, weep at our casual response um, our blindness to the power that we're bound in and the hold that it has not only on us but those around us and our betrayal of you in the process. And yet, Lord, you are faithful to forgive. We come to you as sinners in need of forgiveness, knowing that you have promised you will not turn any away who come to you. And so we do. We come to you with our sin and trusting in you that your grace has forgiven us. Through your Son, in Jesus' name, amen.